Hello, this is Ken Root. As we begin the new year of 2023, I'm changing gears with my podcast. I've done almost 40 in the Better Than Nothing series. They were with my favorite people from my career who are still around and agreed to speak with me. I can't thank them enough, and thank you as well, for listening. Here's the change for the year ahead. I'm calling it AgriTalk the Root Years. Through the generosity of Farm Journal Media, I've been given all the AgriTalk tapes from my years as host. Thanks to AgriTalk producer John Harreth for facilitating the tape and filed cabinet transfer that we made in South Bend, Indiana. AgriTalk, after me, continued on with Mike Adams as host and is still on the air each day with Chip Flory as host. I have kept General Manager Brian Conradi informed of my intentions to use these shows in my podcast. My involvement with AgriTalk dates from the startup in mid-1994 to April 2001, about 1,800 Monday through Friday shows. AgriTalk was an initial concept, a rural affairs show that addressed life in rural America. It did not shy away from controversial topics, and callers were given a forum to say what they thought. We soon realized the show was caller-driven, and my producer, Rustin Hamilton, had to find topics and guests that would cause listeners to call in. Julie Doan took over that role later on and brought in even more interesting guests in the last years we were there. Our survey showed that no more than 8% of our audience ever called the show, but many that did were very insightful and interesting. In some of the new series podcasts, we'll air the whole 38-minute AgriTalk program with an introduction from me to set the stage to jump back over 20 years. I think you'll gain insight in the comparison of then and now. In others, I'll excerpt AgriTalk with a guest in the current day. Today's show started with a classic interview of two young women who were finishing college and beginning to farm back in 1995. On that live AgriTalk program, I spoke to Chris Buck and her younger sister Angie. I am a college classmate of their parents, and we've stayed friends for over 50 years. Now, Chris, Angie, and younger sister Jamie all farm in northwest Oklahoma. Their parents, Jim and Marlene Buck, are retired, mostly. So the girls have farmed with Grandpa, Dad, and now as sisters. Chris and Jamie have children. Chris's boys are teenagers. Jamie's girls are still young. Let me know what you think of these shows. If you remember one from the period when I was host, I might be able to find and play it. My email is kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Now, here's my first attempt at a new podcast series, AgriTalk, The Root Years. <laughs> If your memory of farming can take you back into the last half of the 20th century, 
you will likely say that there were more farmers then than now. The industry is modernized and consolidated since World War II, but the biggest changes came in the good times of the 1970s when grain prices and livestock prices moved sharply higher due to expanded world demand, and in the bad times of the 1980s when a deep recession settled on farm and ranch country for almost a decade. Children born in that era to farm families bore the scars of their parents and were urged to get an education and leave the farm. Most did, but not all of them. In late December of 1995, I spoke with two sisters from northwest Oklahoma who assured me they were going to be farmers. Chris and Angie Buck grew up on a farm that raised wheat and alfalfa, along with stalker cattle that grazed the wheat in the winter. Their parents were classmates of mine at Oklahoma State University in the 1960s. Chris Buck was 24 when we had this first conversation. It was live on AgriTalk, and Angie was 21 finishing up her degree at OSU. They also had a much younger sister, Jamie, who was only about 13 at the time, but she becomes relevant later on in this story. When I was a student at Oklahoma State, we had an illustrious professor of agricultural economics named John Goodwin. Dr. Goodwin taught a sophomore-level class introducing students to agricultural economics. He had written his own textbook, told amazing stories, and challenged the students to think in ways that would surely get him dismissed today. He had a story about Alfalfa County in northwest Oklahoma that he recited every semester. Dr. Goodwin documented that the county had lost population since the 1930s. Undocumented was his story that the New Year's baby one year in the 60s was born in May. The next year, in August, and the next year, in October, and the same woman had it all three years. However, in 1971, Jim and Marlene Buck had a daughter in January. They named her Chris, and I was allowed to be one of her godfathers. She has always been special to me, as I saw her following her father around the farm, becoming an active member of 4-H and FFA, then a good student at OSU, majoring in animal science. She was always kind, fun, and we engaged in many conversations. She even took the time to attend my father's funeral in my hometown in 2000. Angie came along three years later, after Mom and Dad had returned to their Alfalfa County farm. That's the basis for the AgriTalk interview. Coming back to the present day, after months of urging Chris to do a modern-day update with me, she found the time in November of 2022 and sat down at her now-retired parents' home and laid out the past 27 years as a farmer in her own right. She made it. Angie made it. Younger sister Jamie has joined in. Chris is now married with two teenage sons. Jamie's married with two young daughters. Angie farms and uses her miner in entomology to raise bees along with her farming operation. Here's their story, as told by Chris Buck Parker. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I want you to know that the hospital that I was born in, my mom was born there, 
and my dad was born there. And just a couple weeks ago, that hospital was torn down. Now, Angie, my sister, is three years younger than me, but she was not born there because they lacked a person to give you blood if you needed blood. And so mom elected to have Angie in a different hospital. Uh, and then Janie was born 11 years later, and she was born in Union. You said they tore the hospital down just recently. Yes, it was just torn down like a couple of weeks ago, and we have some bricks from the hospital. But what happened is it was the Masonic Hospital, and then it closed, and then it became like an antique dealership. There wasn't any maintenance done on it, and the roof got bad. Well, because the roof got bad, the rest of the hospital followed. It just kind of self-destructed, but uh, it was it was just torn down, so that building's been there for a long time. The thing that is of interest to me with uh, talking to you is that you are a farmer in your own right and really one of the first generation of women to make this step. But you've always planned this, and I had the distinction of getting you and Angie onto AgriTalk live back in the 1990s, about 1995, as I recall, you laid out at that time that you were going to farm. With our family, uh, we've always farmed um, with our dad and with our grandfather. And um, Grandpa's getting older now, and um, he likes going on, on trips, and he likes getting away. And it's it's nice that I'm around here so that there's someone to help Dad. And whenever Angie graduates from college, if she wants to come back and farm, I'm sure there'll be plenty of room for. And also, it's kind of nice to work with someone your own age, too. Do you uh, really think you're going to make it? Yeah, of course. Okay. How is it to you to realize that you've been farming for over 25 years? Well, some days I think it seems a lot more than 25 years. And then there's times that it's flown by. But there's always changes. And I I just don't think I would be a good person to work in an office doing the same thing every day. I do seasonal work. You plant, you harvest, you you build your fences, you take care of baby calves. It's all seasonal. And so I don't do the same thing every day. And I like that aspect. You were very idealistic when you were 21 years of age talking to me. But I tell you, you said some wonderful things at that point about your appreciation for generations that you'd been around. And at that point, your grandmother was cooking for you at lunch every day, as I recall, and you guys would go over there. And she had a wonderful time doing so, and you guys had a great time at lunch. And now that generation is past, and in effect, your parents are about the same age now as uh, she was then. Does that make you feel older and wiser or just older? Uh, probably older and wiser. Uh, the three of us girls are always quoting our grandparents. Just little random things here and there, uh, the things that they said, uh, the things that they thought about the time when they were farming. There's been so many changes, and I think I, I, I really wish I could bring my both of my grandpas back and say, watch this. I can drive this tractor and not even touch the steering wheel. 
And, you know, he started out behind a horse, and look how far we've come. In saying that, though, do you find that life gets more complicated than you would like, that everything is difficult to do because it seems like it's hard to make things easy? Yeah. This technology thing, I don't know who benefits from technology, but I don't think it's agriculture. It makes life so difficult. You just said you could drive a tractor without holding on to the steering wheel. Yeah, when it works. (laughs) It doesn't always work. And, you know, everybody thinks if you have a new tractor and a new planter, you will have less problems. And that's not true anymore. These these box drills, these old John Deere box drills, they'll they'll always plant. These new drills, you have a forty dollar sensor that goes out on them, and you you have to sit there. You got to figure it out. It's it's very it's very frustrating. It seems like, and it's not even just in agriculture. Every everything there's there's an app for everything, and I don't think it makes life easier. It makes it harder. I do think we need more face to face contact. Let's go back in time. You went to college at Oklahoma State. You had been excellent 4-H and FFA, great student. You're the oldest. Everybody keep that in mind of this family, and I think it shows in your personality. And you have been an achiever from the beginning. You got your degree, as I recall, in animal science. Is that right? And then a master's as well? No, I did not get a master's. I just got an undergraduate degree in animal science. And then from there, you step back to the farm. You are in Alfalfa County, Oklahoma, and uh, you are known as a premium quality alfalfa grower. How did you go from college girl to professional farmer? Well, we had a niche, and that niche was that we had two big square balers, and we would bale hay for people. And we did a lot of baling. And that paid the bills. So that's how you get started. I think you just need to find your niche and use that to get your foot in the doorway. Uh, we really don't do custom hay work anymore. Our balers have gotten old, and we have gotten older. Uh, that is a job for a young person. You can't work all day and work all night and then work all day. You can't keep doing that as you get older like you could when you were younger. You know, if it's going to rain, we'll go bail the neighbor's hay. That's not a problem. But we're not doing that every night. You know, that someone younger than us needs to do, to do that. And now, you know, I, I have a husband and I, I have kids. I need to be at home. Since you brought up your health, I know you had a pretty serious car wreck as a young woman. Uh, does that still affect you? Uh, every day when I get up out of my chair or get out of the tractor seat, I can feel it. Tell me about the ability to produce this really high-quality hay. Not everybody can do that. In fact, you had a line one time for me, of which I have many I quote of you, and it was, if I let my father bail my hay, I'd lose every customer I have. Um, <laughs> I said that? Yeah. Okay. Well, my point is, how do you get that alfalfa hay at, to the quality level that people desire it. You need to start out with a clean field. There's really two, well, there's three different kinds of hay. There's your dry cow hay, there's dairy hay, and 
then there's just something in the middle. Uh, we try to cut the hay on time. We try to watch the weather very closely. We don't want any rain on it after it's been cut. Depending upon the temperature and the wind, uh, it'll lay anywhere from 48 hours to seven days. And then you have to rake it, and you have to rake it at the right time. It, you need some humidity. If you don't have any humidity, you knock all the leaves off. But when it comes you, time to bale it, your your stems have to be dry, but your leaves have to stay on. And I think that's that's one thing. If you if you get in a rush and you don't bale it when it's right, gosh, you knock off all your leaves, and that's the protein. That's what determines the value of the hay. Do you have any irrigation, Chris? No, we have we have no irrigation. Um, we have had a horribly, terribly dry summer. Very hot, very dry. I don't even know if you had irrigation in Alfalfa County this summer. I don't think that you can make it work with the price of fuel. And you can't irrigate away a drought, and that's what we're in. We are in a drought. Uh, the last cutting that we took, the hay was beautiful, but it was so little. And glass of hay is worth a lot. But when you look back, you cut it, you rake it, you bale it, you haul it in. And even though price of hay is at record levels, it didn't work. It, it, we should have just left it standing out there. What's happened to the price of land in your area? It has really gone up. It's, it's gone up. Now with interest higher, maybe it will plateau for a while. But golly, it's, it, and a lot of it is, it's not foreign investors, don't get me wrong, but it's, get a lot of people from big cities, they come up here and they, they, they buy a big area of grass with a creek that runs through it. And that's their recreation ground. That's their hunting. And a cow-calf guy has a hard time competing with a neurosurgeon when it comes to purchasing ground. Now, you also run cattle, don't you? Uh, yes. How much of your operation is the cattle business? What percent of your income comes from cattle? The cattle thing, we we use that cattle thing. I, I, re- I really don't know what percentage it would be, but we utilize it. Let's say if we're bailing big square bales and we break a bale, instead of spending all the time to scatter it back out, rebale it, and, you know, it takes you a long time with a pitchfork to, to scatter hay out when it's a 2,000-pound bale. We'll load it up on the back of a pickup, and we'll go dump it to the cows. You know, a dink bale, a small bale, a bale with a big stripe of Johnson grass in it, a truck driver doesn't want to take that to New Mexico or Texas. We feed it to the cow. It's, it's, it's a way to get rid of our lesser quality hay so that we put the good stuff on the truck to send it out of state. We have been planting cover crops. We utilize these cover crops with our cows. I, you know, I like, I like the cattle deal. Going out and looking at these new babies in the spring, newborn calves jumping around, playing, it's pretty rewarding. Let me give you, though, something you told me a while back. We may not be able to be as graphic as you were, but uh, you went through that incredibly hard freeze two years ago, three years ago, and uh, you had a very big struggle for weeks to be able to keep your cattle watered and alive. Yeah, that that was awful. 
Um, Oklahoma can handle a terrible cold for about two or three days. But this is this went on for like two weeks. Little water lines underground were freezing up. Uh, you'd break the ice. You'd get the you'd you'd get the water running. They'd come up and drink, and and it it would be it would be frozen back. It it was it was miserable. Yeah, it was terrible. And we were calving at the time. Uh, we did lose some some calves. There were some people around here who have a lot more cows than us. And uh, Shane said at the co-op, a guy drove by getting rid of his calves, and he said there was probably 30 newborns on the back of his pickup. It, it, it was terrible. It hit at a very bad time, and it lasted a long, long time. But she still loves the cattle business. Still likes cattle business. This morning, Janie and I, we spent all morning hauling cattle to the sale. We always, you know, our, our calves are born in February, March. Uh, we keep them through the summer on grass or a cover crop. And then during the winter, we run them on wheat pasture. And it's a pretty cheap way to get a half to 900 pounds. But we're, we're having to sell everything. There is no wheat pasture. The people who have their cows just on grass pastures, that, that grass is gone. There's a lot of people selling cows now, too. But we haven't done that yet. But we have sold all of our calves. Well, I'm terribly sorry about that. And I pray this rain that's uh, supposedly coming will be able to uh, give you some relief from this. Uh, friends all over the state are moaning. And the further west you go, the more uh, the drought is pervasive. Uh, so I hope you get some rain in the near future. Sunday at church, we were all talking about this because it was, it was two to three inches for this area. And we were we were pretty happy, pretty excited. Uh, they've dropped us back down to three tenths, and I'm sure when the rain comes on Friday, it'll probably be three one hundred. It's gonna <laughs> miss us again. So, and and the thing about it is, is you look forward to it and you're so excited. And there were things that Jamie and I had lined up. We got to get this done before the rain, and then once it rains, this is what we can do. And now it's like, never mind. It's not even gonna rain. Hey, I want to go back, if you wouldn't mind, into your youth, because you were a young woman, single. You started farming. Uh, you were involved in groups through Extension and through Oklahoma State and other things, and we assumed you would uh, you would marry pretty soon because you were certainly uh, the type that I would think any man would would love to be able to take as his wife. Uh, but you were pretty picky. And you were pretty happy, it seemed, by yourself, which I admire. When you look back at that period, kind of take me through your thought process until you decided that you would marry. Well, at the time, I was as happy as I could be. I worked all the time. I didn't have, I didn't have time for anybody else. I knew at some point I would get married. I wasn't in a rush. I was just kind of waiting for the right guy. And when that happened, everything changed. If I had it to do over again, I would do it just like I did. Yeah, I I think that Shane and I are better parents with our two boys because we are older. I, I don't know. I do want to have you tell one story, though. You bought a house in Cherokee, and you moved into it. I thought your father and I helped you move into it. It's an 
unusual story. Can you tell me that story? I, you got to tell me what this is. I don't know. Well, you bought a house for like $10,000, and the yeah. lady you bought it from yeah. just yeah. Uh, pulled the sheets and walked out the door to the nursing home. Yeah, yeah. I lived in a trailer house on our farm, and there was a terrible windstorm, bad. And I thought I thought I was going to blow away. And I said, no more of this. I have to get a house with a basement. So I found a nice little small house, walked through it. I liked it. It was all this furniture in the house. There was pictures on the walls. The cabinets were full of towels. There was extra toilet paper. There was a microwave. She just walked away, and she went into the nursing home. Well, I let the realtor know, I'd be interested in this house, but what are we going to do with all this stuff? So her family brought her up here from the nursing home, and we signed papers, and she said, there is a uh, lady that's going to come get some of this stuff and take it to her antique store. She bought it from me. And I said, okay, that's no problem. Anyway, we visited for a while, and then she called me back, and she said, never mind. I told the lady from the antique store, she's not. She's not getting any of this stuff. It's gonna, it's gonna go to me. So she sold me a house for ten thousand dollars. It was a nice house, really nice little house, fully furnished, and I even got to keep the antiques for ten thousand dollars for that. Ten thousand dollars, yes, yeah. I love that house. I was so happy in that house. It was just a good house. But the point of this story to me is how depressed rural Oklahoma was at the time. Yeah, you can't buy you can't buy a nice house in Cherokee anymore though for ten thousand dollars. The oil boom has been in this area but has left. And there's a there's a lot of people who have stayed and, and gotten other jobs. They're really good people. Um houses are in Cherokee houses are in pretty high demand now. Even when a, a new teacher or something comes into this community, it's 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 hard to find a nice house. But if you if you wanna one bedroom, one bathroom, like I did, it's it's not that big of a deal. But a nice family home in Cherokee, it's pretty hard to come by. My guest is Chris Buck Parker. She's the oldest child of three of Jim and Marlene Buck. She's a farmer and a proud farmer, a smart one, hardworking. All the things she says are true because I know I knew her parents before they married. We were literally the closest people to your mom and dad when they when they had you. It's remarkable to me to to know your family and to see you emerge. Uh there's a lot of intellect. There's different kinds of intellect in your background. Your mother is salt of the earth, solid as a rock. Your father is intelligent, but take this the right way. I know him extremely well. His intelligence is different than my intelligence. He he's mechanical in his thinking, and and sometimes he's a little bit off to the side in some of his philosophy. How have you emerged from this? You seem to be right down the middle of the road, just like your mother, and uh, regarded your father, respected your father, but you sometimes disregard some of your father's theories. I think that's pretty funny. You you have everybody nailed. You're spot on. Uh, growing up. We had chores to do in the house, but the three of us girls spent most of our time outside. We were following around Dad. We took engines apart, 
We took transmissions apart. We would take all these things apart. And sometimes it was kind of hard putting them back together. Of course, he would help us, but then there was little things. And he'd say, figure it out yourself. So we sometimes did it the wrong way. We'd have to take it back apart. And, you know, eventually everything fell into place. But his motto, I think, as we were growing up was, figure it out yourself. So now that the roles have kind of been reversed and it's us three girls farming, he'll say he's technically retired, but every day he's out there helping us do something or helping us move vehicles or helping us move from field to field. And he's got all this advice for us. And sometimes I <laughs> I know what I want to do and I know how I want to do it. And he tells me I'm doing it wrong. And you know something? Just because I don't do it his way doesn't mean it's wrong. But he thinks so. But we were brought up. Figure it out yourself. So now we're figuring it out. But if he doesn't like the way we're doing it, he lets us know. Well, I think that is something that as we get older, we feel that we need to give advice and counsel to the younger generation. And we're really not as directly their parents anymore as we were. And I don't think we we really do ourselves or you any good uh, in doing that. But I do think that the support that we show you and the love that exchanges within a family and his your boys and your and their grandpa, things of that nature, and grandma. I think that's that's really the glue that holds it all together. Yes, it, it is. My dad, you know, you're not supposed to have favorite grandchildren, but everybody has a favorite. And Wyatt, my youngest son, which is 14, and my dad, they think alike, they get along so well, and they're always together. Anytime Wyatt wants to do something, and... This is kind of one thing, one bad thing about a grandparent is if Wyatt wants to do something, I can tell him no. My dad doesn't tell him no. You know, he'll be nine years old and he'll, he'll, he would say, hey, hey, Pops, I want to go over here and look at this tractor. And dad would say, okay, take my pickup. Well, you're really not supposed to let a nine-year-old drive down roads. I know some of them are dirt roads, but it still really shouldn't happen. So dad really doesn't tell Wyatt no, but Anything my dad wants to do or accomplish, Wallace helps him do it. And uh, there's just two little peas in a pod, and I think that's wonderful because there's a lot of parents who don't spend as much time with their kids as my dad has spent with his grandkids. You um, mentioned your third uh, sister, Jamie, who is also farming with you, that she and her husband moved back into the area, and uh, so now you three girls are farming. Do you have individual operations, overlapping operations? Kind of how does it go together? Um, it's all of the above. There are things that I do on my own. There are things that Jamie and I do together, and there are things that Angie and Jamie and I do together. A lot of the alfalfa, the three of us girls do it together. Angie really doesn't want to be on a tractor all the time. She does love the alfalfa. Uh, she's got 
honeybees. And she has like 21 colonies, hives. I think it's hives. She has like 21 hives of honeybees. And she spends a lot of time taking care of her bees. Uh, she plants pollinators for them. You know, I might plant soybeans, but she'll plant pollinators. Angie does some things on her own. Jamie does some things on her own. Jamie and her husband, they've got 6,000 acres at Fargo, Oklahoma, and Jamie's husband, Joe, has a partner, and they they run, they run cattle. They buy heifers. They get them bred. They buy nice heifers. They get them bred. Uh, they, they sell a young cow. We all do things together, but at the same time, we do things separately. And we seem to get along quite well. That probably wouldn't work for everyone, but it works for us. You know, it's interesting that your family had three girls, and one time I said to your mother, you know, I think you should be fortunate that you had three girls because a son like Jimmy would be a real problem. But I jokingly said that. Yeah. But in the case of you being three girls in a family like this that are farming, I've seen others that that, ha- that was better than having a son come back to the farm. I'll let you comment on that. But also, I would put you as close to a son as you can get because of the responsibility that you have always accepted. Yeah. And, and you know, now that mom and dad are getting older, instead of having a son to take care of the farm, they have three girls that take care of the farm. But at the same time, we'll take mom to the dentist. We'll take dad to the doctor. You know, we don't just take care of the farm. We take care of them. And I think that's one place where a son would say, I'll stay back and I'll take care of the farm. My sisters are going to take care of my parents. But, yeah, some days we're farming. Some days we take mom to Oklahoma City to a doctor's appointment. And it's not that she can't drive. Don't get me wrong. She's very capable of driving. But sometimes it's just best to have somebody a little younger behind the wheel. Let me finish up here by asking you, what advice you'd give a young person who wants to farm, including your sons? I would say that if you want to farm, you almost have to have somebody in your family. It does not have to be your father or your grandfather or your grandmother. But you have to have some family help. Just to get started, it's not just the equipment. It's all the fence posts. It's all the tea post. It's a set of corrals. There's, you know, it's not just your tractor and your combine. It's all the little things. And when you don't have access to that, it costs too much to buy it. Do you want to change your sons to farm? Or is it that they're so indoctrinated by now by your father that they have no choice? Uh, they do have a choice, and they know that they have a choice. Joel and Wyatt. Joel is 15, and Wyatt is 14. They love the farm. But it's not exactly in the ways that you probably think that they love it. Uh, they are workers. They don't spend time in their bedrooms. They work. They work hard. They learn to drive semis in the field. Yeah, we wouldn't allow them on the road. But in the field, while we were picking up big square bales, we use front-end loaders, put them on the semis. 
And they were driving those semis when they were probably about five or six years old. And it was all they could do to push in on the clutch. And all they needed to know was to how to put it in first or low, low axle, let off the clutch slowly, and just follow the loader. But they've been helping us since they were little. Uh, they love it. They love working on the farm. But Joel has kind of found this little niche where he cuts firewood. And just a couple weekends ago, he went around and was delivering firewood to people. The kid made $1,000 on a Saturday delivering firewood. They work. Wyatt loves baling hay. He runs a round baler. He'll run a big square baler. But what he has, and it's his, he has a little square baler. It was a little square baler that had been in a barn when a tornado hit and just tore the crap out of it. But he and my dad took it all apart, bent everything back together. They did have, have to buy a few parts and pieces, put it together, and that's his little square baler. This summer and last summer, Wyatt has done some custom bailing for people with a little square baler. This summer, he bailed up um, alfalfa, and he also bailed up some real nice Bermuda grass. Well, all the bales are in the barn, and, you know, he'll get a pickup load. And we just, two nights ago, we took some pristine alfalfa bales to a woman there in Cherokee. And that's, that's his money. And he's, he's very proud of, of bailing hay. He ran the combine all summer this year. And he ended up uh, entering some wheat in the Oklahoma State Fair and the Tulsa State Fair. And he, he did pretty good. Are we pushing our kids into coming back to the farm? No. It's got to be something that they want to do. Uh, they're both highly motivated. Uh, they're smart. They're straight-A students. That doesn't mean that they will have straight-A's when they graduate from high school. But at this point, uh, they make good grades. Uh, they have good friends. They're, they're everything that you want in a child. But for some reason, both of them have said, I don't want to go to college. I want to come back to the farm. I think college is a, is a good idea. I think Votech is a wonderful idea. Go to a technical school, you know, learn to, to be an electrician or a plumber or, you know, things like that. You know, you can always be a plumber and farm. But, you know, you go back to you need a little niche market. You need to be able to make some money over here to help with the farm. You know, uh, your father was a person who could have gone to Votech school and not gone to Oklahoma State University and would be the same person he is today. I don't really think, other than the fraternity experience that we had with him in college, that the university affected him hardly at all because he just wasn't interested in anything except things mechanical and how it works and making it works. And I've never been around a person who was any smarter with machinery with less formal education than him. Yeah, yeah. Dad is dyslexic. Of course, it wasn't diagnosed when he was a child. But now that he's older, we know what his problem is. He's dyslexic. He can't spell worth anything. But there is nothing that he can't build or make or fix. He can just... He, he's like that. And that's, you know, that's one thing about 
one of these days when Dad's not around here, and us girls, we can we can fix things simple. I mean, we we can. But gosh, when he's gone, he will be greatly missed. But maybe Wyatt can catch on to some of these mechanical abilities that he has. And yeah, I think that my dad would have been a really good candidate for Votech. I also feel that a kid needs to get away from home and they need to grow up. And I think that four years of college is good. It costs a lot. But Joel was telling me the other day, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to college. And I said, well then, join the mind. You know, you need, you need to get away. I think I hear a bugle in one or both of your son's future then. Well, no, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. It kind of scares me to death as a parent, but I I do feel as though we shouldn't be coddling our children, and I don't think that Shane and I do that. But I think these kids, they, you know, they need to grow up. They need to experience life. You need to leave. You need to leave before you come back. <laughs> well, I got one story for you here as a Jim Buck story. We were in college, and there were several of us that had this same class, and we were all cramming for the test. It was a final. We were worried about it. And uh, we were, you know, quizzing each other on things that might be on the test. And somebody said, where's Jimmy? And somebody else looked out the window and they said, oh, he's down on the patio and he's overhauling Kenny's motorcycle. (laughs) And I had a BMW motorcycle a long time before they were cool back in the mid-60s, and your father had taken apart all of one side of it that was open just to see what it was while the rest of us were studying for this test. So you're telling and, me you didn't know he was taking apart your motorcycle? No, no, had no idea. Oh, oh, wow. But, but on the other hand, just what you said, he can put it all back together. Yeah. In fact, he put it back together, and then he'll tell me what was wrong with it that he fixed. We had several times in college that we got ourselves in a bind, and everybody went, what do we do now? And it was a mechanical issue, and Jimmy fixed it in yeah, college. He's good. He's, he's good at it. And he was fundamentally, you know, he didn't have any training in anything that he was doing to try to keep that fraternity house running, but he did it. And so if you have that intelligence or if you transmitted that intelligence onto your children, that is a very, very special thing. But I wanted to tell you that there is this theory that people who are dyslexic make excellent farmers because you're holistic in the way you look at things. And perhaps you could say they make good technicians or they make uh, people who understand how to take a machine and look at it in its whole perspective rather than the specifics that many of us get bogged down in. So it actually may be an attribute of your father's personality. It it might be, but it sure don't clean the shop. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever heard heard about people with kids with dyslexia that cannot put their clothes into their chest of drawers? They just throw them in there because... To them, it's organized. Well, yeah, you should see the shop. It's so bad. And Jamie and I will go work on the shop and work on it and work on it. And we'll get it. We'll get it kind of cleaned up. 
and then we'll be doing something else for two weeks, and we come back, and the shop was just as bad as it was when we started. Chris, do you consider it in your farming operation that it's a business first and a lifestyle second? Well, I think neither. Before I was married and had children, the farm was my business. It was my top priority. I missed lots of things because I needed to be on the farm. We baled hay when it was supposed to be baled. We didn't show up late because we were at a soccer ball game or a t-ball game. But now that I have a family of my own, the farm is not my priority. It's my family, my kids. It's my kids. When they need something, I shut off the tractor. And there's probably times I shouldn't do that. But they're involved in the 4-H and the FFA and sports, and they're not old enough to drive. They've had braces on their teeth, and we've had lots of doctor's appointments. And now... Sometimes I'm late to the field, but it's for a reason. Does it help that there are two parents here that you yes. have Ye- yes. and Ye- yes. an income from him? Yeah. Shane is the manager of the Farmers Co-op here in Cherokee, Oklahoma, and he works from 8 to 5, then take off work for nothing. He's there. He's a very dependable employee. Uh, when the kids need a ride, they know they call mom. When they get in trouble at school for fighting, they call mom. I'm who they call. And it, and it's a, it's a pretty good balance. One thing that's good about a farmer being married to somebody who has an eight to five job is I get paid maybe like three or four times a year. But he gets paid every two weeks. And that's what keeps the bills paid. That's what keeps the lights on and the diesel in the pickup. You know, I used to just have to take care of myself. Now we have a family. Kids need shoes. We have to pay for their school meals. It, it'd, be, it'd be hard without that second income to always have something going in the bank every two weeks. Because, you know, mine's not that way. I don't get paid until I sell something. Chris, it's delightful to have been able to talk with you. I, I think people can get the sense of who you are. I know at times you carry the world on your shoulders, but I think you've proven well. As a good granddaughter, a good daughter, a good wife, a good mother, and then we'll see what happens from here. Okay. Thank you for talking to me. Okay, you bet. So do you think that was okay? More than okay. More than okay. You don't realize how meaningful some of the things you say really are. When people were calling up us up in the mid-90s about the show that we did with you, and I'm going to play some of that in, in this piece, they were reacting as, are these girls real? Really? They're that mature? They've got that point of view about their parents and their family and their world? Uh, that was what people were saying, so... I hope you don't feel like I'm mushing it up on you, but that's the truth. 